It has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Here, we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. This big, wide-open space before we go to the phone call seems like a really good place to put a sponsor. Hint, hint. Nudge, nudge. So let's do this. Episode 6, Caller 6. And their story about addiction. Addicts in the dark. Hey, Nick. How are you doing? I'm good. By the sounds of it, I I take it you and I are in different time zones? Yep, you are correct. I'm down here towards the southern part of the United States, Louisiana most specifically. I'm actually a Texas boy. I'm over here in Louisiana for the time being fighting this uh, nasty disease, but I, I can attest to both of them that they're both great places to be. I've, I've lived in Kentucky as well, and uh, good eats, uh, spicy food, and good people. And that nasty disease, I take it you mean addiction. I do mean addiction. I do. Well, this is your chance to tell me about that addiction. You have just under an hour. Just don't mention your name and exactly what city you're in. Okay. All right. Well, hey, I, uh, I guess, you know, it's, it's funny as a, as an addict, you, uh, you figure that we can just take on the world, but I, I'll be honest, I'm even nervous right now. So, and and you don't even know me, so I'm going to be walking around and talking, my friend. Um, I grew up um, in a very affluent family. My dad was a dentist. Um, there is absolutely zero substance abuse in my family. My parents, sister, brother, none of them use anything. Uh, they don't even cuss, smoke cigarettes, nothing. I, um, I was raised in a church. I was in church when the doors were open. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, church choir, you name it. Um, I can remember I, I grew up, as I said, very affluent. I had everything given to me, anything I never had to want, nothing to that matter. Um, but I can remember the first time when I got in high school and my buddy, whose dad was an alcoholic, and, and you know, as a young kid, you – you can't wait for the first time, I guess, when you get to try what you see uh, older people doing. Um, and you see some of the fun parts of it. And you see how people laugh and they're merry and, and all this. Um, I remember going to my friend's house and his dad was an alcoholic. And we and the first time we, we snuck some of his beer, I threw up profusely after we were done. It was absolutely miserable. However, that was the beginning of, let's say... The, the rest of my 26 years of where I am now. And a few days after that, I, uh, I tried marijuana for the first time. And to this day, I can remember where I was and how I felt that night. And it was absolutely the most joyous feeling that I had ever felt. Um, I can remember laying on the floor, and I, and I can still describe it as almost having little ants crawl over your body or, or floating on a cloud or something to that effect. It was absolutely incredible. And from there, uh, it was off to the races. Um, as I mentioned earlier, my dad was a dentist. So, and, you know, you, 
in high school, you start to learn even more stuff and you start to start make, it's like a spider web and you start with one thing and you start meeting other people and they do this and do that. And, uh, um, so it started to become an every night thing, not so much drinking for me, but, but marijuana. Um, soon I had learned about opiates and that that was in the nineties in my, as I said, my dad was a dentist. And so I remember going to my dad's office and finding just stacks of Lortab, 10 milligrams, seven and a half milligrams, five milligrams, just full of, of this stuff. And I, it was then that I started helping myself to, to that. I would begin, you know, I, I would start off with, I would hear my dad speak to his patients, you know, um, take one. If, if, if that doesn't work, you can take two, but you know, don't get overboard with it. So I remember taking one and I was scared. I thought, I thought, Oh my gosh, I mean, could you, could you die from this? What, what could happen? Um, but I remember taking one and it was, it was okay. But then, you know, I'd, I'd heard, you know, take two if needed. I took two and that's when the feeling that, that feeling of taking two at the beginning and laying on the couch and watching something and nobody having a clue as to what's going on was something that kept me going. I would go back to his office over and over and over and I would get more to where I mean, probably by the end of, of high school, I was, I would eat, you know, 10 a day. Uh, and that was all from my dad's office. And, and back then is where these, is when these pharmaceuticals would, pharmaceutical companies, I'm sorry, and pharmaceutical representatives would come and they would drop off on cardboard boxes full of, of Lortab and hydrocodone and, and you name it. Um, and I want to, I want to say, as I'd mentioned, I, I, I come from a great family. I was loved, um, everything. Um, so in, in high school, I was Mr. Everything. I was class president all four years in high school. I, Mr. Personality, everything. And, and for some reason there was something missing that, I don't know what the drugs did for me. I wasn't comfortable in my skin. On the outside to everybody, I had it going. On the inside, there was a void, a void that I had to fill, and I didn't know what it was. I can never put my finger on, on what it was. Was Did I not feel accepted, which is kind of strange because, you know, I was kind of Mr. Everything. So um, I've always worried about what people think of me. Um, I must go back and say there was a point I'd, I'd mentioned I was raised in church and there was a youth minister that um, he had sexually molested me. Um, and the thing with that is I, I buried that till I was 28 years old. I'm, I'm 41 now, but um, never once can I remember that when I did drugs was I like, you know what? I was sexually molested. So I'm going to get high today. I can't ever say that's why I did it. Now, you know, speaking with professionals and all that, they'll, they'll, they'll say that, you know, well, it has something to do with it. It has something to do with it. But, you know, I've just never sat there and thought, you know, I was sexually molested. This is why I'm going to do this. And I feel better. It almost became, Honestly, at the beginning, it was just fun to get high, and it felt good, and the body high felt good. 
and and I continue to do that. But it's come to my my attention that that probably played a, a role in a lot of my abuse. Um, I then went on to to college. I I got a I majored in biology at Texas A and M University. Um, majored in biology. I had a a dental practice I could walk into. At this point, my parents knew perhaps I would I would smoke in marijuana. Well, actually, I'd been caught several times. But, you know, as it was, you're supposed to go on to college. They didn't think it was too big a deal, um, all that. So I went on to college, graduated, majored in biology. I had a dental practice to walk into. Um, however, drugs began to began to escalate just out of this world in college It moved on to, uh, you know, I could still go back to home and, and grab, grab my fixes from my dad's office. Of course I was always smoking marijuana. Um, alcohol just, just started running rampant. Um, I still managed to graduate college. Nothing, you know, nothing to write home about. I can remember one time at college because I had to, I was so messed up one time, I didn't stay final. So I found it best, doctor, my granddad's obituary. Um, and I ended up getting caught. And I had to go in front of the college board. And, and the only reason I say this is because of the, the depths that addiction can take you to where you think it's okay to somehow doctor an obituary of your loved one to get you out of trouble. Um, that, that's just kind of the beginning of some of the things I did. I uh, I graduated. I moved up north in Dallas, and I began working on. Since I was not going to be going to dental school because of my grades, I, I moved up and I started doing research on diseases. I got a job with the with the hospital, and so I worked on diseases. And I did um, I did good work. I did great work, and I was high the whole time. Um, I was high at, at this point. Cocaine started coming into it very prevalently. Um, I used a lot of cocaine at that point. Um, and also in the lab with my background and doing research on diseases, I was able to begin to formulate my own chemicals and stuff in the lab. So um, without going into further detail of that, mainly I started working, I started taking a lot of uh, phenobarbital, um, which is just... Uh, a, very, a sedative, a very, a very hard sedative, and I would take cocaine. I would, I would go back and forth with cocaine and barbadol and alcohol and marijuana. I mean, it was an everyday thing. Um, and I remember one day on my lunch break, I had dozed off at the wheel and had a wreck, and so I got a DUI then, and that was my first time that. Um, it, it didn't happen right that day, but several days later, I remember I was in my apartment doing cocaine by myself. Um, heck, I was naked, and I remember getting a knock at my door, and it was my mom and my aunt and an old boss of mine, and um, opened the door, had no food, naked, and it was at that point that I went to my first treatment facility. I did 28 days at a treatment facility in South Texas. Um, and, and honestly, it, it was a vacation at that point. It was, um, 
I got to get away from the hustle and bustle of the big city of the work I had to do. And it was a 12 step program. And I did what all was needed of me. Um, I was 27 years old, did what all was needed of me, but I just didn't, I wasn't done with enough pain as a lot of people would, would say in, in the classrooms of AA, if you will. Um, so I got out, returned to my job, um, which was in the lab, um, and picked up right where I left off. Um, nothing changed about me. I was 27. Um, I remember getting out of treatment. I, I say nothing changed. I knew I wanted to be sober because I had spiraled so out of control in comparison to a lot of my friends. And I remember when I got out, I went to a sober living home and some of my friends called and said, Hey, just come out. And I showed up at the bar with a backpack with all of my AA materials. Um, and you know, I was going to sit at the bar with them, which is a horrible idea in the first place coming out of treatment. I showed up at the bar with them, backpack AA, and, and I remember them ridiculing me like, um, you know, you can drink a little, da 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 and, and it was, I mean, that had to have been five or six days after I got out of, after I got out of treatment. So, and it was that point I picked up a drink again, and I was living in a sober living home, and uh, I ended up, I, I got kicked out of the sober living home. Um at that point, uh, I moved in with my sister who lived in in the area. She had was a newlywed. Um, she and her husband were gracious enough to let me live with her or them, um, and they and they traveled quite a bit. This whole time, you know, I'd, I'd started drinking, and then you know, only over a few weeks, maybe a month, did it spiral back to where I was. I lived with them for several years and uh, they went out of town quite a bit. So, um, you know, that was open range when they were gone in their big old home. I had their big old home and, um, you know, I did what I wanted. Uh, and, and I can remember sooner or later they came home and I had left a lot of paraphernalia, drugs, all that on the bar. And I remember getting a call and she says, we need to talk. I come home and even my own sister kicked me out of her house at that point. So then I began living out of my, my car in this big city. Um, of course, she was in contact with my parents. And uh, it was at that point, it was, um, why, don't you, why don't you move back home? They, they knew that it had spiraled out of control again, so, so I go back home. Um, that's when I began, I began teaching. I began teaching for a, a local high school. I taught anatomy and physiology, um, chemistry, biology, physics, all that. Um, I enjoyed it because for some reason there was a validation I got from the students. It was at, it was at a, a school of, of troubled kids. Um, so I guess somewhere I knew where they were coming from. A lot of them had drug issues. A lot of them, you know, were, had unexpected pregnancies. Some of them had, had, uh, kids already, and they were just trying to get out of to, to finish high school. Uh, I also caught it, taught at the local community college as well. But um, I worked with a lot of the kids, and I would come. I got back to my hometown, meet up same old people, um, and of course, you start meeting. Like I, I had mentioned earlier, the spider web effect, and you meet one person who knows another, 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 and. Uh, uh, the, the kids were using and 
at this point, a buddy of mine and I had begun ordering a lot of Xanax off of the dark web. Um, and to make a long story short, I, uh, I'd begun sell, selling to students. And, uh, it, and it's embarrassing to even say that, but I'd begun selling to students to support my habit. Um, now, my habit at this point still hasn't got to the, to the extent of where I am now, or I was. Um, so I lost my job there. I was, I got, uh, I actually got arrested for three counts of distribution. I was put on the front of the paper. Um, and I absolutely embarrassed my family, my family's name, everything of, of the town. Um, there, there's, my parents are very well to do in this in this town, and it, it was absolutely embarrassing. Got picked up for distribution, and at that point, I had to go uh, to a treatment facility, A, to get the law off my back, um, and B, at this point, I knew still that I needed help again, so this would be my second treatment. Despite everything going on with you, you're obviously highly educated and intellectual, mm-hmm. much like Sigmund Freud, who had a cocaine addiction, Vincent Van Gogh, an alcoholic, Stephen King was into everything from Xanax to NyQuil. People have often wondered about the correlation between addiction and intelligence and creativity. And I can attest to that. I mean, I've, I have a master's degree now in epidemiology. After all of this had gone down, I went to treatment again. I thought, you know what? I'll go back to school. So I went up to school in Kentucky um, and got a master's degree in, in epidemiology. I, I enjoy research. I enjoy kind of the number crunching, you know, epidemics, uh, things like that. So I, I was still using throughout, throughout my graduate school. Um, I can tell you the first time that I ever decided to intravenously inject heroin, the first time I ever did heroin, um, IV, uh, was the night before a final, and I overdosed. First time. Woke up in the hospital, thought, oh my gosh, I've got a final. Left the hospital, went and took a final that day, and, and knocked it out of the park. Uh, graduated with a 3.8 from graduate school in epidemiology. Um, and that is when the, the, the needle and heroin and all that started just taking off. When you aced a test after an overdose. Yep. And, but it was the first, and, and, and it's crazy. I think normal people, if that happened to them, they would never do it again. To me, it was, it had opened up a new realm of drugs. And when you get a needle and you put it in your arm, um, it, it, it's a, at that point, it was a blessing. It's probably the biggest curse of my life because from there, Things started going horribly, um, and you would and you wonder how it could get any worse. Well, I mean, it can. It it and not even you know I wasn't homeless. I haven't been homeless. You know, I lived out of my car for a little bit when I got kicked out of my sister's, as I mentioned earlier. But you know, I'm, I've never been homeless. I've never really not had much money because, like I said, my parents have have always taken care of me, and they it, in the rooms you'll hear a lot of times and. Especially if you go to um, Al-Anon, um, you hear how your loved ones can can love you to death. 
and and that's almost how I can attest that that my my parents have been with me. They have they have um, provided me with so much just so they know that I I'm still alive. That um, that uh, that it's almost loved me to death. Um, always had money in my pocket, and, and 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 a lot of it had to do with my mom needed to know I was okay. My, my all of them needed to know that I was still alive, and if that meant them having me using and them knowing where I was that night or something, then they were okay with that. Um, I don't know if they if they consciously knew that's what they were doing, but, but really and truly that's what it is. Um, even at 41 right now, um, even at 41, my parents still provide me with a lot. And I just recently got out of treatment again, my third, my third treatment, uh, 97 days. And I'm in sober living right now down in Louisiana. Um, sorry, just to, just to go back, I wanted to backtrack to the overdose for a sec. Something that I was curious about, where I'm from, Narcan and Naloxone kits, safe injection sites, needle exchanges, those are all fairly commonplace. You haven't mentioned them at all. Is that... Is um, you know, I, I guess, I don't know exactly how... It, I, I think it's start, they're starting to roll out programs like that around here. However, I couldn't tell you where to even go um, because it's not something that's advertised or anything like that. Um, I, I don't even know of around here where there's even safe needle exchanges. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I, I had hepatitis C and it had since been treated, thank goodness. So I'm, I'm negative for that. Uh, but I don't even know where there's, there's needle exchanges. Now, if you get up towards your neck of the woods, you know, uh, the Washingtons and Oregons that I, that I've visited quite a bit there. It's definitely all around there, but, but down here, no. So when you were in your active addiction, would you have even cared to have known where those resources were? No, yeah, didn't care about it. Plus I wasn't going to like, if I was withdrawing or, or something like with going to withdraw, I wasn't going to take the time to go to a facility to get my shit tested and all this. Like I had to have it right then, you know? And there's a point in addiction to where you don't want to die, but you're okay with it if it were to happen. Um, of course, I, I can probably speak for a lot of people that, you know, there were times where I thought, hey, maybe this will be my last one. Everybody will be better off without me or something like that. So I would never take the time. Um, I'm lucky to still be alive through overdoses and, and Narcan and, and all that. Um, I'm still lucky to be here. But me personally, I can only speak for myself. I never took the time to go do that, nor have I researched places to go do it. But I can also say that it's not anything that's adver- it's not advertised isn't the, the right word. It's, it's nothing out there saying, hey, come here for for needle exchange or come here to have your stuff tested or, you know, here here's a a package or you can pick up at Walgreens or something so you can try it yourself. I, I can't even tell you where to go do that. And do you think that it's not out in the open because of the social and political climate? I think so because, you know, we're still down here in South United States where, um, you know, more things are hushed than it is, say, up there in the Northwest. Um, people aren't as open. People aren't as understanding down here. You know, there's still a stigma to addiction down here. 
And, and so for that reason, um, it's just, it's not out there because I'm sure other people would say that, you know, you, you start introducing that to society that almost gives people an okay to use. And regardless if it's okay by anybody or not, people are going to do it. It's just that there's that stigma and people down South don't, don't want to make it um, available because it almost introduces probably just a, a different society that they're not comfortable with, with addressing. And it's hard. They don't, it's hard for my parents to understand it because as I've mentioned earlier, they don't know addiction. They don't, you know, I can remember my dad growing up saying, just don't do drugs. Well, you know, drug addicts wouldn't do drugs if it was that easy. It is an absolute mental obsession that will take over your day. Um, Right now, I'm trying to to learn in this sober living. I, I can imagine you know about sober living. Sober living is to kind of transition a lot of alcoholics and addicts back into life without throwing them in the lines, then so to say. Um, and right now, that's what I'm having to do. And even just today, you know, I, I owed money for rent, and I didn't know where I would come get my money. And of course, I tried to text my parents. Um, and, uh, they were, they weren't biting on it, you know, well, just pray about it. Something like that. And right then and there, I have a freak out moment. And, and I think, Holy cow, I can take care of this. Let me go get a fix. And I'm in a city that I've never even been in before in my life trying to live, but I promise you a drug addict can find whatever they need within 30 minutes. Um, and I guess in earlier in my, my account. I, I didn't. I haven't mentioned yet that I'm married with with a kid. Uh, my wife. I've been married for five years. I have a four year old son, um, and she. This is her second ninety day treatment that she has stood beside me, um, and I don't know why. I've I've asked why do you still love me? Um, I'm not deserving all this, and you know what people. Your loved ones can see, our loved ones can see in us what we can't see in ourselves. And they say, you know what? You're incredible. Look at what all you've done. You know, you have a great personality. People love being around you, all this. And still in my head, I tell myself that I'm the biggest piece of shit out there, that I'm worth nothing. There's no reason to live anything. Um, What got me to my latest treatment Like I said, I'll have four months on the 28th of this month. Um, uh, What got me to my latest treatment was I had come home. I dropped my kid off at at, uh, school. Um, And let me, heroin isn't what it used to be. Heroin now is is fentanyl. Um, And fentanyl is potent. Um, And so I had... I had uh, dropped my kid off at work, went and got my my fix, uh, and, and I knew it wasn't heroin. At this point, I know it's fentanyl, um, but you just need what you need. I would go and get it. I would go to my buddy's house, and and I would I was shooting up fentanyl. I, w- I was banging fentanyl intravenously, um, and I didn't have. I got my fix, took my hit. And my buddy, whose house I was sitting at, sold marijuana and pills as well. And I decided to steal some of that, and he caught me. Um, this was after I'd shot fentanyl. I was kind of out of it. Um, and he caught me, 
and I can still remember him putting a gun to my head. And nothing happened there, but he punched me in my eye. Um, I, I'm one of these kids. I don't fight. I'm a preppy white kid that at one point thought that I was just going to follow, you know, fish or the Grateful Dead or something my whole life and pretend like um, I'm not affluent, but I, I really am. But I just wanted to be a hippie. But I don't fight. He hits me in my, my eye. Um, I go home and he follows me home and he tells my wife everything, what all's going down, what I do each day. Um, when they were talking, I went into the bathroom and decided I was going to shoot up the rest of what I had. And I did, um, ended up overdosing, fell out. And I, I didn't know all this until a few weeks into this last treatment, only a few months ago, but I'd begun writing a suicide letter. Um, telling my wife to please tell my son, you know, that I love them and all this. Um, thank goodness I was found. And, uh, and I don't remember much after that, but, um, so they convinced me and I agreed that, uh, Hey, well then I will, I will go to treatment this time. And, uh, um, here's, here's where I am. I did 97 days. Um, you know, in this treatment facility, they had family come and, and, you know, we set knee to knee and, and they tell their hurts and, and I explain my side and, and it's not, it's not a battle. It's not a confrontation. It's a, it, it's very good. I've, it's my third time to do a family day. And, and I wish I could say that I could get, I got it the first time being at 41. Um, I can remember when I was, you know, 20 some odd years old and, and you hear people my age now say, Hey, you don't want to be like me when you grow up. And at 21, 22, you think, Oh, I won't be that guy. And before you know it, 19 years have gone by and I've gone through my third treatment and, um, I'm still trying to get the hang of this. Um, four months clean, living in a sober house, Taking now Trexone, which is is something that that blocks, in layman's terms, blocks your your opiate receptor. So if I were to try to get high or or use heroin or anything, um, it wouldn't work, possibly save my life. But uh, I still find myself every day thinking about using, knowing that my wife has already told me she will change the locks on the house. She will take my son. Um, everything. And I still catch my thoughts of, uh, I, I, I want to get high. I need to get high. I, I don't have my rent money or something like that. Um, most people would be like, why would you even think that way? That, that is the nature of this beast. You have a mental obsession and that's almost putting it lightly, a mental obsession. I mean, it is something that takes your thoughts over every almost all day if, you, if you're not careful. Now, granted, this go around, I'm, I'm starting it all over again. And it's been told to me by people that have long sobriety that it gets easier. Um, and so that's kind of where I am right now. In a sober home with a great group of guys. I have a wife and son several hours away from me. Um, but I, they actually even came and visited me this past weekend. And, um, there were points in times that I, I got frazzled. I, I thought, holy cow, if they talk to me anymore, if my son asks me this or that, I, I'm going to go crazy. And, and it's crazy because that's my son. 
but I know how to get rid of crazy and that's using drugs. And, um, and when they drove away Sunday, I knew that I still needed to be where I am because I could not be thrown out there to the world right now because I, I, I don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to cope with things and even being all I want to do is to be the best husband, the best father, the best father, uh, uh, the son that I would have totally cheated my parents out of in life. That's all I want to do. And uh, most people think, well, just do it. Say no to drugs. It's not that easy. So. There is a lot there, dude. Uh-huh serious childhood trauma, addiction struggles, which led to legal troubles and multiple stints in and out of rehab. And by the way, he's also married and has a son. (laughs) And my wife loves me so much that almost to a fault of her own, because most wives would have probably left their husband if I had taken her to the depths that I have. Um, I really don't know why she stuck around, especially for the second 90-some-a-day treatment that we're going through together. But uh, I can I can say that she does not because she loves me. She's, prob- she's probably fearful of life without me because, because she's comfortable um, where she is. And she wants the best for me, and she knows I can do it this this is her words telling me this. She knows I can do it, how good a person I am, all that. Um, now, granted, she's setting her her um, her guidelines down now. Like I had mentioned earlier, she said, you know, you mess up much more, I'll change the locks. But she's still standing beside me. She loves me, and she wants me to beat this because she knows that I can help people that I'm smart, I can help people, um, and perhaps maybe this one is the one that'll stick. I mean, every addict that goes to rehab wants that rehab to stick. We never plan on going to do it again, really and truly. You, we don't want to. However, a relapse happens way before you actually use. You begin to think about it. You begin to not go to a meeting or not meditate. You don't open up with people who may know what you're going through. and before you know it, you're you're using, trying to cover it, and, and you can pull it off on a lot of people for a while, but the way this addiction works, you end up spiraling so far out of control that... Um, Another thing about the relapse actually happening before you use, the feeling of the high also happens before you use too. Right. Just the ritual of going to get it, preparing it, talking about using it, that's a high in and of itself. It, it, it's the reward pathway, the central nervous reward pathway that, that um, you know, and that's me just kind of spitting the scientific jargon that, that I have studied. But there, there's a reward pathway with, with certain chemicals. And, and whenever you start thinking about it and then you okay it, um, it's a euphoria that comes over you. And it's almost like... Um, a lot of times when you when you're headed when you're headed to your drug dealer's house or something, you think you on the way to your drug dealer's house, you almost feel like you may have to shit yourself because you are so excited that you're going to get a fix. Um, and it is it's a high almost just going to get it because you are anticipating 
what you're about to get from it. Same thing with the relapse, man. When you're thinking about it weeks in advance, and we, I, I say weeks, well, let's just narrow it down to days. But uh, it's that that's that feeling that uh, holy shit, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be awesome. And and the unfortunate part now is is the shit that I mess with is killing people every day. It's no longer the stuff back in the days that you know you knew what you were getting now. Now it's it's that nasty fentanyl. It's the stuff that people are dropping left and right because a it's way too potent. B they don't know what they're getting, um, and uh, or or they or they take too much, obviously, um, and and it's killing people. And and that's what that's the stuff I use. And I have to remind myself if I go out there, I don't know what I'm getting, and the way I do it, I can die. I can die. Then. My my son is is without a dad. My wife is without a husband. My parents are without a son. My my siblings are without a brother. And as I said earlier, that's all I want to be is the best of that for everybody around. But if I go out there and do that, I die and I fucked all that up. I fuck it all. And that's not fair. Um, and I say that because hell, I mentioned earlier how I. I guess I tried a suicide attempt that was brought to my and and I've even said in my life that people that commit suicide are the most selfish people out there. Well, lo and behold, look what the hell I tried to do before I came in here. It's it's amazing what you'll say one time and then end up doing. It's amazing what I tell my son, but I tell myself. I try to raise my son about love, hugs, you know, be the best person you can. Um, you know, uh, just be accepting and all that. But yet here I am telling myself that I'm a horrible person. I've done this. I've done that. Uh, I don't deserve to live. I failed at, at life. I'm a horrible husband. But on the outside, I'm telling other people, They're, you're a great person. I love you. All this. And people will buy into it. I can tell them and I mean it. And people are like, wow, I am a good person. But I don't even believe it on the inside. I don't even believe it on the inside. And that is what addiction has to address. It's not just stopping using drugs. It's addressing underlying issues of our mental state, of our mental obsession, why we act the way we do, why we feel the way we do. And uh, me, I, I don't have the answers. I, I don't know. I'm still learning. I'm trying to figure this out. So I don't have to obsess over this. And I don't have to do it anymore. And I can only hope and I pray at night that that it will it will somehow come into my head and I won't have to do that again and um it's tough it's absolutely tough i am fearful of sobriety but i'm just as fearful of a relapse so it's like where's the happy medium i don't know i don't know that this, this disease is just something that fucks with your head one time you're over here the next time you're on the opposite side of the spectrum it's finding that threshold that makes you happy. And um, I'm still trying to learn that to this day at age 41 after my third treatment. And, you know, close to, you know, 300 days of my life in, in treatment facilities and sober living. I know what you mean about sobriety seeming as though it's scary. Mm -hmm. Because addicts are, are most comfortable by themselves in their heads. Uh huh. Stepping outside your head... It, can be it's it's unfamiliar. I haven't known that for twenty six years. 
just being comfortable in my own skin, being comfortable in my own mindset. Um, I don't know how to do it. And on top of just working these 12 steps to stay sober, the world tells us we have to work out there to get financial gains. You know, we have to work to get spiritual gains, all that. And so it's almost just like a, a third job almost or a fourth job just to, to remain sober while everything else is being blasted at us that we have no idea how to cope with without drugs, if that makes sense. Boy, it definitely makes sense to me. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but hey, uh, your wife and kids still very lucky that you're around. They are. They are, man. And uh, I have to learn that I am worth it. And that's something... This tape that we addicts say to ourselves over and over, I'm not worth it. I have to train myself. I wake up and I write down five things that I'm grateful for every morning. And it's been told to me, if I keep doing that, my mindset will change. I will become more grateful for the gifts I've been given. And um, things will get better. And uh, so it, it's it's training, it's practice, it's all that to get to where I hope to one day be comfortable being sober and being what I know and I can do and what I want to do. So me telling this is good for me, and I think you know that. It's just like going to an AA meeting. It, it's You go there, it helps other people, but it really helps you the most. And so now today, and I'll still go to a meeting tonight, but today I can sit here and say, you know what? I did something positive. And it's not just talking about myself. Maybe it's educating whoever's listening. Maybe I helped you. I don't know. That's not for me to know, but it helped me. So that's, that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to take, take to bed tonight, lay my head down and I'm going to be happy with myself. So I appreciate it. And and, and I appreciate what you're doing, my friend. I do, I do. A high level of intelligence can often result in a person being able to easily achieve things like master's degrees, writing published studies, climbing the social ladder. All those things can be achieved easily, which means the person doesn't develop the maturity or perseverance that comes along with having to cope with negative emotions. And right now, this caller is learning those skills. Thanks for listening. If you want to anonymously tell your story about addiction, find Addicts in the Dark on Instagram.